judgment and wrath. But by the time Paul gets to the end of this book, we have come together in a community of faith so that we are now one in Christ. And that's the conclusion of the book of Romans. He starts out with Jew and Gentile, or, you know, separated from God, separated from each other. He ends up with Jew and Gentile, now united with God and united with each other. And so the theme of this final passage in his argument is the unity of the body of Christ. This whole passage we're going to look at this morning is one long appeal to the whole church, the body of Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're weak or strong, that you might be one, bonded together in genuine unity. And in Paul's appeal, I want us to pick out six aspects of unity. I've listed them on the back of your bulletin. The first is the price of unity in verse 1. Unity doesn't come easy, and it isn't cheap. You see, if you want to experience something beyond superficial unity, you can expect it to cost you something. That's true in all your relationships. That's true with your spouse. It's true with your kids. It's true with your friends. It's true with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. There is a price for unity. And those who are expected to step forward and pay that price of unity are the mature, those who are strong in faith. Notice verse 1. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Now, this is really a summary of the last half of chapter 14. Because the strong are those who have faith to believe that all things are clean. The strong are those who, when it comes to gray areas, understand their liberty in Christ. The strong are those who don't have a sensitive conscience when it comes to those morally neutral areas. And if you'll notice, Paul includes himself in this camp. So if you are in that camp, if you are strong in faith, if you're not hung up about a whole lot of religious scruples, if you're not making a lot of rules where God hasn't made any rules, then here's what you're to do. Paul says you are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. That word bear means to get under them and help carry their load. And believe me, having a weak conscience is a load. And so Paul says you are to lay down your liberty and pick up your brother's burden. Support him in his weakness. I was tempted to call this first point the posture of unity because I think the posture of unity requires a bent back. You are to bend over and pick up the weaknesses of the weak. It's really described back in chapter 14 and verse 21 where Paul says, It's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. See, that's the posture he's talking about. I'm to bend down and support my weaker brother. You say, yeah, but that's crazy. I mean, this guy shouldn't even have a burden. He should know better. He should just throw these things aside and move on. Why should I have to accommodate his spiritual deficiency? I don't like that. Well, look at the end of verse 1. 
He says, you're to bear the weakness of the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. In the Christian life, we don't get to please ourselves. Now, if you haven't noticed that yet, stick around. The price of unity is selflessness. It's putting others first. It's pleasing others. Now, a call for unselfishness shouldn't surprise us at this point in the book of Romans. Because back in chapter 6, he said we are dead to sin. And the simplest definition of sin is that sin is selfishness. And then in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. You see, once you're dead, unselfishness isn't much to ask. Once you have sacrificed yourself to God, sacrificing yourself for your brother is not so difficult. And so the expression of a surrendered life is selflessness. And that's the price of unity. Have you noticed that when you're selfish, when you're seeking to please yourself, it doesn't breed unity? Instead, it breeds strife. And so Paul says, if we're going to encounter practical unity, we're going to have to pay the price, and the price is unselfishly pleasing others. Second is the process of unity in verses 2 to 4. Notice verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification. See, there's a process going on here. Our unselfish burden bearing is working toward an end. And that end is my brother's good and my brother's edification. You see, this tells me that I don't bend down to where my brother is in order to leave him there. And I don't bend down to where my weaker brother is to stay there with him forever. You see, I'm doing this initially to please him, but there's also an end in mind, and that end is ultimately for what's good for him and in order to build him up or edify him. And that's the process. And you see, what, what Paul is telling us is that the essential ingredient that will cause this process to work is unselfish love. What happens when I flaunt my liberty in front of my brother? I tear him down. I stumble him. But Paul says, when I bend down to bear his burden, then I'm in a position, then I'm in a posture to build him up. And to help us understand this process, Paul says, I want you to remember two things. I want you to remember, first of all, our illustration. Notice verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. If you need some motivation, just remember that Christ went through this same process for you. He was strong. He had liberty. He was free. But he didn't please himself. Instead, he was willing to pay the price. And he stooped down and took your weakness so that you might be strong. And what was your weakness? Well, he tells us here by quoting from Psalm 69, 9. Your weakness was that you were a reproach to God. 
That means everything you did and everything you said was a slap in the face of God. Now, I can't think of a weaker position to be in as a human being than being an enemy of God. That's where you were. And Jesus condescended to where I am in order to bear my sin and lift me up. And Paul is simply saying, if he did that for me, then I can bend down to my weaker brother and meet him at his point of need in order to lift him up. If Christ gave up his freedom in order to free me, then I can give up my freedom in order to free my weaker brother. And so Christ is the illustration. And then secondly, he gives us he says we, he wants us to remember our instruction, and that's in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, that's one of those verses. We're going to go on through this verse because I want you to understand the context. This is a verse we could preach a whole message on because it's talking about the Word of God. He says not only we're to to remember our illustration, we're to remember our instruction, and our instruction comes from the Word of God. And if you'll notice what he says here, he says, first of all, the Word of God gives us instruction. That's teaching. That's telling us what to do. The Word of God tells us what to do. And then he says the next step is perseverance. We know what to do. Perseverance is doing what we know what to do and keeping on doing what we know what to do. And then the next step is, he says, not only perseverance, but encouragement of the Scriptures. And so the Scriptures tell me what to do. I am to persevere in doing that. And then the Scriptures come along again and encourage me to keep on doing what I'm supposed to do. And then the end result, he says, is so that we might have hope. And you know what I find exciting about this? If you look ahead to verse 5, he says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Now that tells me, God gives the Word of God for instruction. He gives the perseverance. He gives the encouragement. So everything I need to have hope in my Christian life is God-given. He gives me the Word of God to tell me what to do. He gives me the perseverance to do it, and then he gives me the encouragement to keep on keeping on doing it, and as I do that, I get hope. Now, I was thinking about hope this week. There's a lot of things you can live without, but you can't really live without hope. You have to have something in mind that you're going toward. You can't live without hope. I was also thinking, you know, The most selfish people in the world are people who are hopeless. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If I know tomorrow I'm dying, then Paul says, let's live it up today. Let's be selfish today. Unselfishness comes out of my hope for tomorrow. And so Paul is telling us our motivation is to look at Christ and our motivation is to get in the Scriptures because as we get hope from the Scriptures, we're enabled to give up our freedom to help our weaker brother. But I don't think that's his only point here. I think he's also reminding us that the Scriptures are are used to build up our weaker brother and make him strong. 
And let me remind you of the process again. Weaker brothers, by their very description, are not intended to stay weak. Weaker brothers are intended to move to the point of being strong. But the Word of God alone will not make a weaker brother strong. That's why you can't go up to a weaker brother and say, here, read this commentary. Or read this article. Read this book. Or, you know, wh why does this guy do that? He should know better. You see, the process is that I, as a stronger brother, am to bend down and bear his weakness. And then when I've met him on his level, when I have paid the price to get there, then I can instruct him out of the Word of God and he'll listen and I can help build him up. But I can't look down on him and tell him those things. I have to meet him at his point of need. That's when I'm doing what Paul told me to do in Ephesians 4.15. That's when I'm speaking the truth in love. And that's the process of unity. And then thirdly, I want you to see the purpose of unity. Notice verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you get that? God wants us to have one mind so that with one purpose we might with one voice glorify Him. We're to all have the same mind. And when he says that, he's not saying that we all should you know, think exactly alike. That we all are going to agree on every little detail. That everybody who's a Christian is going to vote the same. That's not what he's saying. That doesn't happen and that will never happen. The emphasis here when he talks about the mind is the attitude of the mind. In fact, this is the very same word that Paul uses in Philippians 2.15 when he says, have this attitude in you, this mind, this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was that attitude? It was an attitude of humility. It's the renewed mind that he talks about in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 where he says we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. When he talks about us having the same mind, he's talking about us having the same attitude. And that attitude we ought to share together is an attitude of humility. It's sharing together the mind of Christ. And what was the attitude of Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart. We're to have the same mind. And then secondly, we're to have the same voice. Now, that doesn't mean we all get to sing like Clay or Wendy. doesn't mean we should all be sopranos. He says we're to have one voice. You know what the one voice is we're to have? It's the voice of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaking in Hebrews 2.12 says, In the midst of the church, I will sing thy praise. When we as a church gather together and sing praises to God, that verse tells me that Jesus is singing through us praises to the Father. That's why you'll see me singing even though I can't sing. Because Jesus sings through me 
to the praise of the Father. But you know what? Disunity in the body of Christ throws Jesus off key. Disunity in the body of Christ means there are several different voices singing and they're not in harmony. See, God wants to hear one voice, the voice of Christ, coming from one mind, the mind of Christ. And it's for one accord or one purpose, and that is to glorify God. You see, our oneness, our unity brings glory to God. And that's the purpose of it. God is glorified. When we come together, united like this, and we sing praises to God, God is glorified by that. But listen to me. Praise without unity is just noise. We can come together and have perfect harmony in our voices. But if we've got disharmony in our relationships, then God is not glorified by that. He wants one voice and one mind and one purpose bringing him glory. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5:23, if you come to the altar to worship and you remember that your brother has something against you, you remember that you've get, got disharmony with your brother, what does he say? He says, get up from the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother. That is, reestablish the unity there, reestablish the harmony, and then after you've done that, he says, then come back and worship God. Why? Because God is only glorified in our united praise. When we come with one mind, one voice, and one purpose, and that purpose is to glorify Him. Fourth is the policy of unity in verse 7. Did you ever build a clubhouse when you were a kid? You get a few kids in the neighborhood, you build a clubhouse. What's the first thing you do after you build a clubhouse? You make a policy. You establish a policy of acceptance. Who's in the club and who's out of the club? And the universal requirement in my neighborhood was no girls. That was the policy. Now, as we get older, our policy changes. But I'm not sure our tendency to make policies of acceptance changes. See, even after we become Christians, though we may not be ready to admit it, we often keep unwritten, unspoken lists for acceptance into our circle or our little fellowship or our church, our clubhouse. I saw a comic strip recently, Geech. I had a priest, he comes into a bar and lays his Bible on the bar and he says uh, to the bartender, Brother Fester, I'm concerned about your soul. And the bartender says, well, that's your job. And the priest says, yeah, but this is more than a professional concern, it's a personal one. And the bartender turns around and says, what's your concern about? And the priest said, well, on the one hand, I'm concerned that you may not make it to heaven. 
But on the other hand, if you do, I'm concerned that we might be neighbors. What is your policy for acceptance? What is your policy for the church? What is the policy of unity? Well, look at verse 7. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. You know what? The policy has already been set by the one who owns the clubhouse. Jesus set the standard. So you are free to be just as prejudiced as Jesus is. You are free to be just as sectarian as Jesus is. You are free to be just as restrictive as Jesus is. He says you are to accept other people just the way Jesus accepted you. Now, what's Jesus' policy for acceptance? Well, earlier in the book of Romans, Romans 2.11 says there is no partiality with God. So Jesus makes no distinctions on the basis of race, color, social status, wealth, education. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus scandalized the religious world of his day because he hung out with all the wrong people. He sacrificed his reputation in order to accept tax collectors and sinners. And I think his policy maybe is most concisely stated in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, Jesus accepts everybody without distinction and without concern for his own reputation. And if Christ accepts me that way, if Christ received me when I was an outcast, when I was unclean, when I was a sinner, when I had a burden that I couldn't carry, then how can I refuse to accept you? You see, for me to refuse to accept someone that Christ accepts is for me to say that I've got higher standards than Jesus does. And if you'll notice the end of verse 7, it says Jesus did this to the glory of God. Christ's acceptance of us brought glory to God. And your acceptance of others also brings glory to God. And conversely, when I refuse to accept others that Jesus accepts, what am I doing? I am quenching the glory that God is due. I am throwing the song of praise to the glory of God off key because we glorify God with one mind and one voice. And so the policy of unity is acceptance. Jesus style. And then the fifth is the pattern of unity in verses 8 to 12. And we've really already seen it. The pattern of unity is Jesus himself. Notice verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God 
for his mercy. Jesus has become a servant. Now, what does a servant do? He puts the needs of others ahead of himself. He seeks to please other people. And here he tells us that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to confirm the promises of the Old Testament so that the Jews might glorify God for his faithfulness. And he came to the Gentiles for quite a different reason, so that we might glorify God. Why? For his mercy. Because it's only because Israel rejected him initially that he came to us. We are trophies of the mercy of God. And then he goes on in these few verses to show us this wasn't an afterthought. That God's intention all along was to bring the Jew and Gentile together into one body, one unit, to glorify God. And he does that by four quotes from the Old Testament. In verse 9, he gives us a quote from Psalm 18. He says, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. That's Jesus speaking. Christ is among the heathen, praising God. And then in verse 10, we have a quote from Deuteronomy 32. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Here you have the Gentiles rejoicing with the people of Israel in unity. And then verse 11 is a quote from Psalm 117. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. All Gentiles and all peoples praising God. And then verse 12 is a quote from Isaiah 11. And again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Here you have the Gentiles hoping in the root of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? Jesse was David's dad. And through Jesse came the lineage of the kings of Israel. And so what he's saying here is that the Gentiles are hoping in the king of Israel. And so Christ is the pattern of unity. He came as servant king to Jew and Gentile alike to establish our unity to the praise and the glory of God. And then the final point is the prayer of unity in verse 13. Notice, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that's another verse we could spend a Sunday on because it's rich. And I call this a prayer of unity because the request by Paul is for joy and peace. And those are two things that will never coexist with strife and disharmony. His prayer is that we might have joy and peace. And notice the source. It's the God of hope. Notice the breadth of his prayer. He's asking that we might be filled with joy and peace, that we might have all joy and peace, and that we might abound in joy and peace. And then notice the condition. It's faith, because he says it happens in believing. You see, the closer we each get to the God of hope, the closer we are to each other, and the more we experience this joy, and this peace. And then he adds the ability. How do we pull this off? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just paraphrase this phrase and make, or this prayer and make it ours. 
as we believe you, God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace so that by the power of your Spirit we may overflow with hope. What a beautiful prayer. Faith, hope, joy, peace. All the qualities of unity. You know, the book of Romans is divided into two parts. Chapters 1 to 11 is doctrine. Chapters 12 to 16 is duty. In chapters 1 to 11, Paul tells us what to believe. In chapters 12 to 16, he tells us how to behave. So chapters 12 to 16 is the practical part of the book. But you know what I find to be very fascinating? Paul's instructions to us about developing a Christian mind, which I consider to be vital, is accomplished in one verse. Chapter 12, verse 2. He discussed having the right attitude toward myself and the right estimation of myself and how I fit into the body of Christ in six verses. Chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. A call to love others took 13 verses. Chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. My responsibility to the government took seven verses. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. My debt of love to society as a whole took seven verses. Chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. But you know what? His discussion of how I am to get along with Christians who don't think exactly like I do or act exactly like I do takes all of chapter 14 and half of chapter 15, 35 verses. What's that tell us? This is a priority. Unity matters to God. The price, you've got to give up your selfishness. The process, bending down to build up your brother. The purpose, to glorify God. The policy, acceptance. The pattern, Jesus. And the prayer is for all faith and hope and joy and peace to be ours and abounding in an atmosphere of unity. If you've really listened and gleaned the truth of Paul's argument through this great book of Romans, then you will be doing more than spouting new Bible knowledge. You will be hugging your brother in a genuine way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that appeals to us as believers to have practical unity in our relationships. And Father, we're thankful that we're reminded that we were at one time separated from you. And you stooped down and humbled yourself and met us at our need and lifted us up. And now you have filled us with joy and peace. And Lord, with that example, we pray that we might practice it with all our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that we might be known for a posture of a bent back as we bear the burden, the load of others around us to build them up and allow them to experience the freedom that you've given them. Father, draw us together as a small part of your body here in this church in true unity that we might reflect 
your policy of acceptance, not only here, but in this community and beyond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.